0: All right, everybody, we are back. We are live with the incredible Steven, and that is one hell of a white wall you got there.
1: Yeah, kind of boring. It's more about the face, you know. <laughs> there you <laughs> go.
0: You, you want to you pitch your availability. And uh, women, if you're out there, uh, Steven has been right about everything, so you always like a boyfriend who will be right about everything. Uh, your, your wealthy man just sold out of uh, Lisa Kyra breaking. You're like, listen, other people can freeze your cum. I've, I've done enough of that. I don't need to freeze egg and cum anymore uh what what else you got
1: <laughs> um yeah i was actually really interested in yeast which was cool because there's a really big uh, brewery scene here in san diego and people go fucking crazy for their yeast so there's actually a whole community of yeast hunters that will go out to different parts of the world to gather yeast to brew with and they take that shit real seriously so i was like you know give me your stocks and yeah yeah so, you know wait, you're, cool. you're getting into the yeast game Yeah, so actually the yeast get exhausted when you brew beer. And I'm not an expert, so I might piss off some people here. But you can only keep batching like the wort. So basically the yeast will float to the bottom of the beer when it's done fermenting. And then you just take that yeast and put it into a new tank and keep the fermenting going. But you can only do that about five times before the yeast just kind of give up and die. So a good trick is to actually save that yeast and freeze back samples. So then when you need to start a new batch of beer with your secret yeast, you can get it from a fresh frozen batch.
0: Nice. Oh, so you're going to start freezing yeast for people. Exactly. Yeah. Particularly and then, dude, in my like craft right. and No. And then here's what ends up happening. The yeast somehow, like, uh the sperm and egg that you freeze somehow, <laughs> like, blends with the yeast. And then all of a sudden, you, like, a beer comes to life. And then, like, yeah. we can have a cartoon
1: where we get to just hang out with a beer. I love that. Out of the frozen tank, the mist comes as creature. Dude. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, yeah, man. But-
0: All right. So I brought you, uh, we, uh, you and I, we've done significant Corona coverage. Uh, I would, I would say, yeah, we were, we were on top of things early. I would say over the last three months we've been like, okay, we know that they've lied to us. Now we got to wait for the dust to settle a little bit. Um, luckily it seems that off the backs of the trucker protest, even in America, they're realizing like, eh, I don't think I can push this too much further. Uh, It even seems like they're laying off potentially vaccinating kids under the age of five, Um, which even even the fact that they're still trying to vaccinate over five is crazy. But at least uh, at least they're pulling it back a little bit. Um, So there were some big topics that I wanted to get into. And I know that you come prepared. So it could be that if you had a place that you wanted to start with first, I'm, I'm happy to hand it over to you.
1: Yeah, no, I like the email, dude. And kind of going with your previous podcast, I was thinking, you know, first we can cover the over-exaggerated COVID deaths, specifically looking at UK data because the the CDC is full of like snaky fucks. So we can't really trust (laughs) it. And that's just proven, right? We don't even need to go into it. And um, so it's nice to look at UK data, then look at our numbers and kind of look at that. Then we can look at the rising rates in death, which is really alarming, and the amount of people dying for non-COVID causes, what we can say about that, what we can't. Um, then we can talk about some of the actual like chemical molecular biology behind ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, as well as like aspirin and like antihistamines and whatnot. And and why that's kind of important is because now we're getting into a discussion like that Alex Berenson piece where he says, hey, here's a randomized clinical control trial of ivermectin in fucking Malaysia. And it says it doesn't work. Um, you know, that's a really bold statement from kind of a nitpicky journalist that, you know, that's kind of, um, that's that did very good work, specifically when criticizing people like Fauci. But when, when you get into the nuances of going from like drug discovery to using a drug and proving its efficacy and people, it gets there's you can't just speak so definitively, uh, definitively, excuse me. So we can get into that too. And then, um, And then also, I feel like Alex Berenson just kind of has it out for Dr. Robert Malone. I don't know if you've seen him side by sides on Fox. So
0: why don't Um, we, why don't we start with uh, the first topic, which is going to be overinflated death numbers. So just to kind of uh, explain this a little bit, um, we already saw that hospitalizations uh, were overestimated by 50%. Now, what's amazing about that was that We were talking about that for a while, that the hospitalizations were overestimated. And then all of a sudden, when Omicron came around, even Fauci's like, well, you have to differentiate between with COVID and hospitalized from COVID. And it's like, oh, even he's acknowledging that that one's true. Right. And so we've seen that a lot of the numbers uh, from the outset of this. I mean, you had pointed out any of the reporting whatsoever was relying off the PCR, which was not a good metric. Mm -hmm. So any data sets that we have are not going to be accurate. But we do kind of keep seeing that they're making changes to even the numbers that they told us. And so it is interesting to take a look at the total death numbers and go, was that even accurate? So I'll hand it back to you to kind of explain it to us.
1: Yeah. And real quick, just to go to one article you sent me that was, uh, it was a fact check on Zero Hedge about saying PCR tests are absolutely erroneous and should never be used for diagnostics. This this kind of clever health.net website said that was false which is complete nonsense. PCRs are not diagnostic tests. They can be used to help confirm what you're dealing with, but the diagnosis comes from, okay, someone's coughing a lot with a lot of mucus. They have a fever. So there must be an upper respiratory virus. Okay, so which is this the flu or is this coronavirus, right? And then, so you can get into some uh, discrepancies like that, but you don't just go around giving people PCR tests and then diagnosing them like that. So it's when you get into the weeds that people can lie about the test. But going back to your point about over-exaggerating numbers, to go specifically to this UK data... It was pretty shocking. So from the same time period that we looked at three months ago, so January 2020 to September 2021, this is important because this is the original COVID variant. Along with Delta, this is vaccinated or unvaccinated populations along with the people that did get vaccinated. So we're looking at a whole swath of of data here. And when we're talking about deaths, these are all different types of deaths. So the the UK COVID numbers, the actual total uh, number of deaths, was 137,000 uh, and 133. So this is was used by policymakers in the media, 137,000 COVID deaths. Looked at it a year later, the number of COVID deaths that this was the sole cause of death. So this was no other uh, serious comorbidities. These are healthy people that died of COVID. The real number is 17,000. So in other but, words- so,
0: But that means that you've had like- when you say comorbidity, so you could have a sixty-year-old who's diabetic that died of COVID, but then we're not we're not counting that as a full COVID death. Is that the idea?
1: Uh, uh, yes, to, yeah. To some extent, it goes to it goes from that, which is kind of a mild example, all the way to the case of someone that had a serious heart disease and then got COVID and then died of like a heart attack, right. um, but, but also test positive of COVID with a PCR uh, PCR test, correct? But, but in but terms of
0: if we uh, so the better way to look at this would just be if we wanted to establish the risk of healthy individuals getting COVID and dying of COVID, the total amount of healthy individuals in the UK that died of COVID is seventeen thousand,
1: opposed to the number that policymakers and just crowing about on the media, which is one hundred and thirty-seven thousand. So that's eight. That's a factor of eight times higher. And yeah, also, if a- you looked,
0: <clears throat> if you looked at the death rate of 17,000 over the estimated infection rate, you're going to be looking at a, a like a, probably what's not a, a non-alarming death rate. Now, just to play devil's advocate, sure.
1: yeah. could For anyone
0: sure. say that that data set is only that low of a number because of vaccination? Like, wouldn't you almost want to look at, uh, all of the deaths pre when like pre
1: mass rollout of uh, the, so yeah, you're saying deaths between, you know, January and September of 2020. And then the next year, basically yeah yeah right right um to
0: that's what makes it so tough is that like the data is just not that easily available But just, I mean, just to go in short, though, 17,000. I I don't
1: know how relevant that would be, though, just because we're looking at people that died with, I I see what you're saying. You're saying, could the vaccine help people with these comorbidities more? So did that change the percentage of people dying with comorbidities? But then it gets complicated because what if the people that didn't have comorbidities were also vaxxed? So you get into a rabbit hole, if you see what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but but that's a, that's a great point. And like, and, and I love that. So I keep playing devil's advocate here, especially with the numbers, but to get to, to, to break this open even more is what we've been doing since the beginning and break it down by age. When any, anytime anyone tells you anything about COVID or any of these diseases, you need to break it down by age. So when you do that, like we said, 17,000 people, uh, COVID was the sole cause of death. 13,000 were over the age of 65.
0: Oh, wow. So we only have yeah. 4,000
1: people under the age of 65 died of COVID without a comorbidity. Were healthy and died of COVID, yes. And presumably, like we kind of looked and just leading cause of death wise, people under 65 obviously have less comorbidities because the, the most common comorbidities and leading causes of death are heart disease, cancer, diabetes and you even get into like uh, some dementia and other problems but obviously this affects 65 year and older cohort.
0: Now nobody talks about this at all, but then on the same note if we know that only 4000 people under the age of 65 without a comorbidity died, that means that healthy individuals under the age of 65 are virtually not at risk, right? Now if we go if we if we say that that's true, how much further along would we be if we hadn't vaccinated? And from the outset, we allowed those people to go the natural immunity route because those people would actually have robust immunity. And we probably could have sped up dealing with having dealt with this thing within two months, because basically if everyone under the age of 65 without a comorbidity, just went out and got Corona and we kept the other individuals
1: shifts at work. Right.
0: Right. Then what would happen is, uh, you would end up with just like the 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 natural immunity from most of the population of having had had it, which would actually be more robust than what this vaccine immunity is.
1: And we might not have seen Omicron or, or it might have been a lot less escapeful of natural and vaccine induced immunity. Possibly. Because
0: people because people have suggested that there's a possibility that because of the strategy that we've taken, we allowed like the virus to stick around longer, which also gives it more of an opportunity to mutate.
1: Precisely. And again, the most important thing, it doesn't matter where it starts, uh, viral evolution and all evolution is two parts. It's mutation and natural selection. Mutation is literally what everyone thought thinks about in a lab. Like, oh, my right. God, the virus mutated. That's completely stoichiometric and random. That's literally just a function of entropy. And the more you divide, the more you're likely to mutate. So that's that's random. But what's important is the natural selection part. The natural selection says, okay, is that mutation helpful? And is it going to do a fitness advantage? If it is, then we get evolution. If it's not, you're just a mutant and you fucking die, right? If The giraffe got a long neck, but only because that long neck allowed it to eat high. High leaves? Did it actually become long? neck If there were no leaves that were high, that long neck wouldn't be helpful to the giraffe. They wouldn't have it, right? Type thing. That makes sense. Got it. Yeah, you know, and and so um, just really interesting. And then just to go to numbers. So just using that same time period, uh, the numbers that uh, the UK used was 137 thousand people died. And actually, using the CDC numbers, about 390 thousand people died in the United States. So if we were to just kind of impose those numbers what we're really looking at is something about 50,000 people died of covid as a natural cause or as a as a single cause versus the like 400,000 that was reported.
0: Okay. And yeah, that's just I mean, a, that, yeah. That's yeah. a significant reduction.
1: Right. Absolutely and um, and, and, and then also to drive your point home, cause you were trying to tear apart really well, uh, vaccine versus non-vax and who's dying, who's not. And, th- and that's almost impossible. What we can look at is age, which is objective, right? And so this stuck out to me. The average age of death in the UK was 82.5 years old the, and the average age of death of, uh, which is actually higher than the average age of death of men and about the same as women.
0: All right. So now, the inverse of this, and uh, Zero Hedge has put a couple articles up, and I want to be clear. Sometimes I know 100% what I'm talking about, and other times I'm going, here's something interesting, and it's alarmist. So I'm going to preface. Here's something interesting, and it's alarmist. If there was a problem with the vaccines, and we can understand that the VARES reporting is not a good system, uh, and that chances are it probably is not recording most of the incidents I would guess. I've heard the other argue that you know people are more likely to report this one. My guess is that it's underreported, but fine. The way that we might actually catch these problems is that if suddenly in mortality tables or other illness tables there's a significant increase right since the start of coronavirus, like if let's just keep it really simple. Let's say you looked at current mortality tables in the US and the average life expectancy was age 80. If all of a sudden Starting in 2023 and 2024, that fell to 70, we'd go, Oh, something's up. Now, correlation doesn't prove causation. They might actually go, oh, that's because of the coronavirus, and that coronavirus left an input imprint on people that was, long, though, right? that was
1: long that was long
0: lasting. I'm just saying as a theoretical. Yeah. Let me just yeah. finish this. so as a the, but it could also be that all these people were vaccinated and in our large aggregate numbers, we're actually seeing the effects of all this vaccination. So what I'm just saying from like an actuarial perspective, the large numbers of what happens at the end of the year when we collect these things of like, what are the cancer rates in 30 year olds? What are the cancer rates in 40 year olds? Like we might actually start seeing whether or not the vaccine did caught. I'm not saying that it did. I'm saying that the large actuarial tables might paint a picture of if there was significant harm. Right. Could be that there isn't significant harm. But it could also be that there is and that that would get captured by the actuarial tables. And from what I'm seeing, I've seen Alex Berenson report, I believe, on like UK deaths, basically excess mortality in European countries. Zero had just had a couple articles about, uh, they had one with a funny title of uh, like short insurance companies and long long, like your uh, funeral parlors. So I'll I'll hand it back to you. Are we seeing any evidence yet to suggest that there were actual harms because of the vaccine
1: Yeah, so i'm going to be uh real here and this is like my opinion but also what i think mathematically is that you're really not going to be able to see it because there will always be a valid logical argument against it like oh is there excess mortality yeah we literally shut down the goddamn world for two years people stop going to the doctor there's always that type of excuse so i think uh you know unfortunately the 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 best argument is kind of like the same arguments we've been making we're putting together the puzzle but the puzzle will never be complete where you know unfortunately there, there will never be a smoking gun and um and it, it you know i think we get into like a lot of kind of there's a game theory or a kind of like hey if we keep doing this enough then they'll admit it they're not going to admit anything so i think um it's really important to not, I'm not talking about expectations, but I'm talking about what we can prove uh, beyond the point of proving that these people are doing this uh, with evil or known intentions, like the outcome they're going for is purposeful. So I think that we won't be to, to be specific to your point, there's not going to be a smoking gun, but I think the best argument is the average, the average age of uh, life expectancy for both men and women for before coronavirus vaccines and then after coronavirus vaccines because if that life expectancy goes down significantly that's a huge issue and a huge red flag because we already know the average life expect uh, the average death age of coronavirus is in the 80s. So that's not going to affect the tables. If anything, this sounds kind of weird, but the people dying from coronavirus are actually extending the tables because they're dying past the past the average age of people dying already. That makes sense. Because they already live past that age.
0: Oh, I, I see what you're saying. And then the, the other part is that with increasing technology, if in 20 years from now, people are actually dying sooner like it's kind of like the way they go there there's no inflation it's or, or for a little while they were going there's no inflation well part of why there isn't any and there wasn't inflation was because you were able to get goods from China for so much cheaper think about how much cheaper those would be right so it's almost like imagine if the mortality table just stayed where it was well like that could mean that we were we would have been living 20 years longer so to, just speak to your point of that there won't be a smoking gun uh you know i guess that's another reason why it would just be hard to track
1: Right. And, and it's, it's so tempting and, and that's, and it's funny because like, you know, I don't want to be like the I am science this is science, but like, this this what this conversation is science, and this has exactly everything to do with the ivermectin conversation we're going to have. There's clear uh, lab studies that I've made like my past career doing showing that at reasonable concentrations, ivermectin has uh, potent antiviral abilities and the mechanism of action is clear on multiple different levels, right? And then the question is, how does that translate into animal models? And then how does that translate into people and what statements can you say based on that one clinical trial or even a bunch of clinical trials versus what we know happens in a lab and versus what we know happens if we get the right concentration into people? So just to
0: set this up, um, if you read the um, the Kennedy book, Fauci, uh, the real Anthony Fauci, uh, I listened to I'm going to say about 70 percent of that audio book comprehended about 15 percent um it it makes that mistake of like being so dead and then in the study in africa and then in the study Uh. it's like too much information where it's like just i don't know every author once they're making books that prove themselves that much to a t they almost need two different books you need one book that's like like here's what i'm telling you and if you want to see it like overwhelmingly proved here's the secondary chapter with like all the you know what i mean it's like you, you need a dummy version of those books anyways the most remarkable claim that he makes, and it's the same claim that um, Malone made when he was on Rogan, was I'm gonna just throw out a figure. I might not have it right, but like 80% of the deaths that took place could have been prevented if we were using the preventative treatments, uh, which includes ivermectin and includes hydroxychloroquine, and then I guess I guess they also had some other ideas, vitamin D, rinsing your nose, just shit that you could have done before you went to the hospital that was that was overlooked. So that's not to say that 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 figure is specific to ivermectin. It sounds like it's per- specific to just uh, using like treatments from the outset of like a diagnosis. Um, it, that was probably the most remarkable claim of that book. And then also, like you said, we're probably never going to prove it. But I would think if you could actually prove that the policies that Fauci took uh, led to eighty percent more deaths than otherwise, at a minimum, you can get sure. the guy fired because he's caused death. But I, I would I would hope that there is. Uh, that you could actually point to some criminality there in terms of the way that he uh, didn't quite allow for or seemingly didn't quite allow for quick studies of ivermectin or at least the suppression of individual doctors uh, from being able to just recommend it. Because I've spoken to doctors uh, who we've had on the show, really just one who was trying, got in trouble for prescribing it. Like doctors have got in trouble, which is crazy, like threatening license, like you're not allowed to, if you're a doctor and you think you thought that this would work, Or you at least wanted to experiment with something that you thought would work. You weren't allowed to do it, Uh, so I'll hand it back to you because I I, like. I've been saying from the beginning, ivermectin. It's interesting. I could. I don't know. I can't tell you. I took it. I don't fucking know. So I'll hand (laughs) it back to you. What do you think
1: of the ivories and the hydroxys? I mean, so. I'm a I'm a huge fan of ivory, but not not for like not for maybe the reasons you think. And and this is really important to put in the context the claim that it could have helped 80 percent of the deaths. That I think that's kind of a ridiculous number. It certainly could have helped some deaths, and the reason is not because ivermectins uh, a, a cruise missile made for the the coronavirus to blow it up. No 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 no. Ivermectin has um, just uh, general anti-inflammatory, but also some um, kind of a promiscuous binding activity. And I love using the word promiscuous hmm. in molecular biology. Did it all the time. But what it means is that it likes to bind the ACE2 receptor, which is the same receptor coronavirus likes to bind to. This is proven in the lab, so it can actually inhibit the binding of the virus to cells. And even when the cell goes intracellular, intracellular ivermectin can actually block the transport, the nuclear transport of uh, the coronavirus uh, to kind of uh, hijack your own cell. And so this is all shown and proven in a lab. And like I said, this is bench studies. And this was all done at a, uh, a reasonable concentration. But sorry, I, I don't want to get into a tangent. But what I'm trying to say is that um, ivermectin's uh, you know, use and hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine come from their availability and the, and the risk-adverseness of them. Uh, because they've already been FDA approved and everyone knows their risk profile and that they've worked previously for viruses. And this is before we even knew what I just said about it working in the lab against coronavirus. We, they knew it worked against other viruses for very specific reasons. And the reasons I told you, we knew about, right? It, it blocks ACE2 receptors. It works uh, to stop HIV virus, um, nuclear transporting. This is all known. So this is what I'm talking about, of kind of weaving together a story in a laboratory. And it's not a story because you're proving it, right? And it's through peer-reviewed papers and evidence. And then saying, hey, can we get this concentration into people? Is it already used into people? And if so, then we should get people on it. It's, it's a risk reward, especially when it can be shown in a laboratory that it works. So it's not that ivermectin or any of this vitamin D is specific for coronavirus. It's that it's easy to get wide used and could have easily, um, it could have only helped not hurt.
0: Got you. And so Alex Berenson, who you were criticizing, because uh, he's done a lot of great reporting, but he came out this past week basically going, hey, ivermectin doesn't work and you're here to refute the claim.
1: I I am and I I can post the review I looked at but so um I just need to look at uh let's see I'll get the name for you but just one let's see a peer review in 2022 by Zaidi and it's in the Journal of Antibiotics but it just goes over the dozens of different mechanisms ivermectin uses to actually specifically block coronavirus uh, SARS-CoV-2 entry and replication in the lab and just some uh Um, I guess to get kind of wonky, um, some anti-inflammatory reactions it has in common with, uh, steroids and aspirin and even, uh, antihistamines is that it blocks NF kappa B, which is a uh, inflammatory pathway and TNF alpha, which is also uh, an inflammatory cytokine. But long story short, um, ivermectin has been shown in a laboratory to work. So the fact that, um, Alex Berenson pulls out some, uh, Some randomized clinical control trials that look at 500 people and then show, oh, 20% more people in the ivermectin group suffered serious COVID versus non. That doesn't mean as much to me when um, we're trying to build this argument and puzzle pieces with real world lab data. Because the next question that I look for in that study is what was their serum concentration of ivermectin? Were you just kind of giving people three pills and saying, you know, fucking take this and we'll see what happens, or were you giving to them with food? You know, and um, me from I'm kind of biased from my background, but you know, you always start in a lab, you build you build out the actual mechanism, and then. So when you bring to people, the question is, is, is it safe? This is called ADMET data. It stands for absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion, toxicity. And these are all different pharmaceutical steps you need to meet. And, and ivermectin and anything FDA approved has already met all of those, which means it has a safe profile. And if it has a safe profile and it's widely available and it's shown to work in the lab, it's really a hard argument to say, don't take it if that makes sense.
0: Fair enough. All right. So there were two other topics um, right. that we were going to take a look at. Um, the next one is, uh, well, th- this was you and I looked into this because um, to showcase just how uh, screwy the U.S. data is. Um, somebody had either hit me up on Twitter or otherwise. And I, you and I just kind of looked into it and validated it. But um, in the U.S., for COVID hospitalizations, if your COVID stat if your COVID vaccine status is unknown, you're considered not vaccinated. Uh right. and if we and if you look at generally speaking at the data, like how hard are they working to that va- to um to validate your vaccination status? So if you come in and you're seriously ill, like you might even be able to have the vaccine card on you, but if it wasn't done within your state, they can't check the record. And so now you're just unvaccinated. So how many people over the last six months, when we were hearing about the hospitalization being amongst the unvaxed right how many of those people were actually vaccinated but since they didn't take the time to uh basically prove their vaccination status like in other words the, the like the baseline was that you were considered unvaccinated unless they can validate
1: that you were vaccinated so- Right. And and like you're saying, like, and it took a while, like I thought about this, there isn't like a list, right? It's not like, oh, here's a health insurance card, swipe it, this person's vaccinated. No, 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 right. no, no. Right. So, um, you know, there's still really strict law. So I think like what you're saying, I imagine, you know, I mean, think about it, you can get vaccinated at Walmart. Right. So like you're saying, unless you're one of these like, you know, super Karens or something like wearing your Vax card on your arm um or very explicit about it you know what you're saying is absolutely true and to you know to go even deeper kind of the human aspect is the hospital incentives and um, i just want to read these off this is actually absolutely astounding so the hospital incentives so hospitals receive increased cash flow from the government for these uh for COVID tests the amount of COVID tests done the amount of COVID diagnosis, the amount of COVID patients that are currently in the hospital, the use of ventilators, which has now been shown to actually cause more harm than good, which is interesting, which was a standard on that one. Right. And then also COVID deaths, the hospitals got paid, and use of remdesivir, which is a big pharma drug that's extremely uh, expensive for RNA viruses and also has some severe side effects because it actually mimics ATP, which your own cells use. And this is in, and you know, which, which would target the virus more than ivermectin, right? But we're not talking about just targeting the virus. We're talking about a spectrum of things, availability, the time and, and uh, side effects. That one's been an
0: interesting one. Cause I mean, I have been really taking a side on it because he had some of the conservatives Like your Rand Pauls and your uh, your guy from uh, Florida saying, "Hey, the Remdesivir works," and they're not making it available. And then a lot of the people that I've seen who are critical of uh, the vaccines in general were saying that Remdesivir was basically just as bad. It was pushed through emergency authorization. It was big pharma, and that it's actually been you know had some uh, some bad consequences yeah,
1: um, just generally, um hospitals, medical doctors are always shunned away from uh, prescribing generics. I mean, that's why, like, I sent you that website that I go to to get my generic uh, metformin oh, yeah. and, and other stuff, right? Be, because, like, uh, doctors will they'll try to get you on the newest thing, the most expensive, with the most side effects. And that's just generally speaking. But, like you said, I think it's also interesting to, to keep in mind that we just uncovered, and this is in our opinion, that most the vast majority of people dying from COVID have other comorbidities, some of which not so serious, some can be very serious. Diabetes is very serious, specifically in later step uh, staged stages. So the, the point here is that while we're looking at these treatments, are they, are they stratified for these comorbidities? You know, when we're we're looking at, you know, um, how good remdesivir is or how good all these are, you know, are we taking into account, you know, what, you know, these old sick people that are kind of dying and what did they die from really? Did they die from COVID or did they die from heart failure that was kind of being pulled forward a couple months? Um, so yeah, I, I think just to put a point on it, I think, it's pretty obvious, like we've been speculating that COVID-19 took the place of the flu and a lot of flu cases got misdiagnosed as COVID and it pulled forward a lot of people that would have died in the next six months anyway.
0: Got it. And then, all right, the last thing I want to cover, and then I'll hand it back to you. Maybe there are some other things, but I, I just, I can't believe that like Fauci's getting, getting away with the backpedal here of just going like, it's um even the CDC is like, it's a, we're, we're, we're continuing our mask guidance, but it's up to local. If it's like, I, it's like this crazy. well, it, like now they're going, no, there is no one centralized salute. It's like, You don't get to change your mind on that. You don't get to preach for two years. There is the only way to approach this is with one centralized solution. And everyone's got to listen to us because we know best to, oh, well, we don't know best. And so everyone should make their own. No, no, no. Then you don't get to be, you were the person who said one centralized solution. So Now, if you're of the philosophy that it doesn't have to be one centralized solution, you don't keep your fucking job. That's a different approach. You know what I mean? I don't know. There's something like, and it's driving me nuts.
1: And, and, and how you feel about that is exactly how I feel about the vaccine from day one. It's the same type of thing. It's like, no, no, you guys, you, you guys clearly made it so people wouldn't get infected or, or that was kind of the whisper at least. Right. right? And then, and now everyone, and now I would make the argument, um, just molecularly speaking, people are almost more likely to get infected now, whether the severity we could talk about, but uh, you know, everyone that's vaccinated has got Omicron. So, um. It was all just kind of lies from the beginning. Um, and I think they're just really sloppy people that have always kind of failed upwards. And and I think just generally, we're at a point, I mean, I don't want to get too much into, into Ukraine, but it's like, Jesus Christ, what can I fucking believe anymore? Like, you have people just looking into the camera and saying something like the sky is green, man. And then they get uh, promoted. So I think I think it's all part of a psychological warfare campaign that's being waged by people whose names we don't know um because there's a lot of i don't want to call them useful idiots but this goes to something i wanted to talk about after is it's not incompetence these people aren't stupid um think of them like me but like way more degenerate and evil right like imagine i was trying to fucking i was a lot more clean and i was wearing a suit and i was all fucking uh farm it up and i'm trying to fucking train someone to do it right so you got to be really careful when you just say these people are just so dumb or fauci's an idiot no he's not a there's fucking fine. idiot they, they know what exactly they're doing. um it, this goes for not only the the government pharmaceutical companies but obviously even our military nowadays anywhere where there's kind of this structure of kind of you know you owe a debt um, you then have to kind of service people in a hierarchy to kind of service that debt and to go up in that hierarchy, and then um, you just become kind of beholden to it, which is bad.
0: Got it. All right. Anything else uh, you wanted to let the listeners know as a part of the Saturday afternoon deep dive taking place on a Sunday? You seem to be freezing up on us a little bit,
1: though. <laughs> Flow in the pharmaceutical industry and academia. And so, just from a top down flow, we have you know, actually in the FDA, which is uh, an NIH, which is an organ- organization responsible for funding every academic and university laboratory. Every, um, every uh, peer reviewed paper, most of them come out of universities. These universities get their equipment, their supplies, their funding for, to hire students and do PhD programs from the federal government. So what happens is these universities right like and that's come to the Stephen, I'm, I'm gonna cut you off
0: for one second okay. um since this is the last topic that we're covering and you seem to be flaking out a little bit by in terms of connection yeah. why don't you turn off the video no no, no don't leave <laughs> I was gonna say maybe uh I'll, I'll, we'll make this the last point and oh,
1: no, maybe, yeah
0: are we good yeah, yeah we seem to be good if it starts flaking out again though I'll um maybe turn off Maybe turn off the video and just go audio only.
1: Okay, cool. Oh, yes. So basically just saying the the, the money source starts from the federal government at the NIH and the FDA. And what they do is they'll they'll send that money to academics and professors at these universities. And this is important because the universities train the next level of lab techs and eventually the people that are going into these uh, pharmaceutical companies. And so universities, what happens is the discovery research. So a lot of the hard work, discovering new chemicals, new drugs, new cancers to treat, this happens in university labs funded by federal governments. And then what happens is these university labs and these professors will usually do a spin out small biotech or there'll be a different small biotech that will then take the rights of whatever that university lab found on the government's dime to then try to market it and to do more targeted research. And these companies are all in the red, by the way, which is really interesting. Biotechs in publicly traded in the stock market, they're never even expected to generate positive cash flow. They're just expected to get bought out by a bigger pharma company. And so this is all. So the money for all of this is coming from the federal government. So then what happens is these small biotechs twirl about. And when they're onto something big, these big pharma companies will come and then they'll actually buy out the rights or they'll just buy out the whole company. And what happens is these big pharmaceutical companies then hire the best people that these small companies hired from the university labs. And so what you have is university students kind of getting into the indoctrination, going into small professor run companies, just an extension of college. Think a master's degree without a master's. you got to do this. This is how we do stuff. Getting bought out by bigger pharmaceutical companies. And then take the best of that crop and basically the best yes men that can kind of get the data they need. It's not, you know, not get the not make up data, but get the data they need. There's kind of a difference there, if that makes sense. And, and then so then we go from these kind of uh, big pharmaceutical companies that then go and their one job is basically to come up with these drugs that then they can, they can put on insurance. Um, that's the golden payday. That's what everyone's after. That's why none of these companies make money because eventually they want to get a drug that they can cure a lot of people with and put it on insurance and charge a hundred grand for it. That's what's happening with these Alzheimer drugs, and they have a bunch of reasons for it. But it's basically because, uh, you know, who pays basically insurance is the people and also the government. And what's interesting is that so then Big Pharma to kind of keep this pipeline going will then pay the FDA. Uh, A lot of people that work at Big Pharma will then go work at the FDA. And also, they also kind of grease the skids in other ways. And also, Big Pharma will sponsor university labs to keep them quiet. And university labs are also the ones that have to peer review the Big Pharma's papers. So it's all a very kind of incestuous money web with it starting from the federal government and it kind of being a hierarchy of checks and balances until you get to the top, which is Big Pharma and kind of what they want. And um, I think it's also just important to take away that these companies don't make money. Uh, the, The money stems from the government and then insurance at the end of the kind of this pyramid.
0: So insurance and government are able to basically bribe everyone from top to bottom precisely
1: and it's very and it's it's kind of complex but it's kind of not exactly and 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 the money flow goes from students by being literally workers in labs uh, you know learning a degree to then going to these small biotechs that just get grants from the government but also work with universities in tandem to kind of you know marketing and shit and then the big pharma companies with their cash will eventually come and bail them out if they have a good idea keeping the money in the system Um, But then eventually it all just keeps going back because then they pay insurance and
0: yeah. There you go. The cycle of money. And uh, hopefully in another lifetime, I can become one of these scientists and uh, work in a lab.
1: Yeah. You got a lab job for me? with I got, I was thinking, and Hey, shoot me down. If you don't like this, I was thinking we do, here we go. We do a weekly series half hour, how to design and create a virus chalkboard to vials with trillions of virus particles. With Stephen, <laughs> oh, do we all? I only need five times, maybe like twenty minutes. <laughs> okay, <laughs>
0: and and so we're gonna walk the internet through how they can create of their own virus
1: and I'm, for profit, very specifically to generally. Right. And I'll tie it back into this coronavirus pandemic. Okay, um, I feel like all right.
0: Let me let me think about that. I think it's very funny. <laughs> I'm gonna I, can I wear a lab coat,
1: dude? We can. Got- <gasps> we can make this almost educational too. I like it. And all, and just to all this information, maybe maybe I'll come out
0: your way. Maybe, maybe we should film this in person. Let's get into that. Can we do it from your lab? So the setting's cool. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I like this. And how, how many, how many film days would it take for us to film the, uh, the web series of how to create your own virus from beginning Uh, to
1: finish just one, but we wouldn't, the dummy's guide
0: to creating pandemics.
1: Yeah, or we could do. And yeah, we could go over how to like can I play different politicians
0: part? throughout it. Can I walk in as Fauci and go, it's not good enough. I need something that will make me even more money. It's, yeah, uh, well. I, <laughs> It's got to make people sick. It's not making people sick. I need something that will make them sick so then I can charge them for the solution. <laughs> I'll work <laughs> on my Fauci. I'll come in as Biden. Come on, man. You're just going to put this out there. <laughs> All right. I, I, I'm, I'll, I'll mull it over.
1: It's not the yeah. worst idea. I think uh, be fun. Share stuff you can find online. All
0: right. I mean, I don't know the legality of this, but you and I, we're not lawyers. So, you know, I get go for it until you find out you're not allowed to do it.
1: No, I mean, there are protocols. Why, online, should, pharma- but-
0: why should pharmaceutical companies be the only people that can create pandemics and profit from them? We want to, mm. we want to bring that to everybody to create some competition against the pharmaceutical companies.
1: Real talk, Rob, since we're getting into it, and if our relationship blossoms, who knows in the future, I'm about decentralized biohacking and not just personal biohacking, but if we have a community and you need insulin, we should have an insulin maker there, you know, or at least someone that knows about it. Or if, um, same thing, you know, I don't want to get into genetically modifying viruses or, you know, a tetracycline inducible kill gene, but like that, we can save that for the class.
0: There you go. So that way it's just, it's a purely academic exercise.
1: Right. Theoretically, and if
0: I come out, you have a lab that you can make me designer drugs.
1: Uh, I know someone
0: that could that could that could be a secondary series called like Rob that. Experiments with Lab Drugs.
1: You'd be like Walt Disney.
0: <laughs> All right, I think that's our episode. Uh, here we can take a uh, we can take yeah. a couple a uh, couple comments here. Um, Adreno Casino new name Raw Real Talk. Robbie Berna, <laughs> um, it's not science; it's misinformation uh unknown emus that seems to be the standing operating procedure for the tech sector as well um this question goes much earlier in the chat uh question for steven is it the case that a comorbidity makes the actual covid19 sickness itself worse or that the level of covid19 sickness a constant forgiven person but being healthy helps you withstand it
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So a big problem I have with Western medicine is that it views uh, diseases like COVID just in the function of the virus. When in fact, um, your body's response to the virus is way more important than what the virus does to you. And in fact, uh, people dying from COVID Uh, to a range of other diseases actually uh, infectious diseases die because of our body's response to the bacteria or the virus that's inside of us so just to your uh, just to that really great question and the point the comorbidities are extremely important because something like uh, uh, diabetes with low or high blood sugar can uh, drastically affect your immune system so you can actually have depleted uh, white blood cells or your white blood cells won't be as effective at uh delivering antigens to create antibodies so or you could go to something like uh which is more relevant to your question like heart disease if you already had an inflamed heart or you already had a a big plaque there um covid obviously is not going to you know it's not going to raise everyone's heartbeat by 10 beats per minute if that makes sense but um the the same function that a 20 year old wouldn't even notice they had covid would make it so someone that had a huge heart problem would know they would have COVID because it is kind of pushing you across that finish line in a very specific way. Um, So that's a really good question. It does depend. But again, um, I would say your body's reaction to COVID is far more important in your death and hospitalization than what COVID does to your body.
0: All right. And then last comment, a uh, great idea from Anona Moose. Yo, bath salts presents run your mouth. They're Ooh. thinking, why should just yo kratom, a downer, uh, operate in the space? Why not get an upper? I did bath salts once. They were actually fun. I don't know that I'd do it again. A gas station once? Nah, it's somebody. I was dating a chick at one point, came back from some vacation with a bag of bath salts.
1: Did you rail um, it off the tits?
0: No, I wasn't that cool. I just did a bump in the bathroom and then, you know, no, whatever. But no. it was uh, it was, it was a, tr- it, that, that was uh, I would do bath salt. Maybe. I don't know. All right.
1: I, I that's <laughs> all I got for today. You got anything else, buddy? Um, uh, I think you should start a tally coin. So your okay. audience can donate Bitcoin to you. And of course you just start a wall. We can talk about it offline. The official Robbie, the fire tally coin. We can you just set it up? Business. Just
0: set it up and give me something. I'll put on the bottom yeah. of the screen and tell people to give me money. So- you just gotta do something crazy when we reach the goal. Um. Okay. What's the goal gonna be? I think one bitcoin's pretty cool for now. Ooh. What? A full fucking. What's that? Like forty grand? Full coin. Yeah. I'll buy the Robbie, the firemobile. We'll paint it. <laughs> we'll use all the money on the on the fire van, and uh, it'll Ooh. be available for uh, for summer porch store. Oh all man. Right. Adrena Casino Chrome, my first affliction of COVID, did wring my heart out, but I'm doing better after two years and three variants. All right, last one of the day. None I never really got into. I don't know what that means. All right, I'm calling it a broadcast. Thank you, Mr. Steven. Have a great uh, rest of your weekend. It was fun. See you guys later. Peace. Peace.